Our scripture reading this morning is taken from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, speak to us now. Form and shape us as your people by your word. Be with me as I seek to preach your word, though I am a sinner. Be with all of us, though we're sinful people. And be moving in our hearts by your Holy Spirit to conform us more and more to the image of Christ Jesus. Amen. So we're continuing to preach through the book of First Peter. We're going to finish up next week. And it's always interesting to preach a text like this one because of how specific it is. This text is Peter especially speaking to the elders, the leaders of the church, and to uh, his, his readers in this very particular way about life together as the church. And whenever you come to a text like this, you kind of end up debating as a pastor how to preach it, because you could take this text and then try to make some more generalized points about leadership in our world and life together, and there are certainly good general truths from a text like this one. But that always has challenges too, especially because it doesn't always translate fully. I mean, many of us are leaders in different spheres, in our homes and families, in our workplaces, even if you aren't engaged with leadership in the church. And so as a consequence of that, we can think, oh, there's principles here and there are, but also you get that, you know, like if you are a business manager and then you're also a parent and you try to handle your children in the same exact way you handle your employees, that there are differences. And likewise for leadership in the church. And so because of that, and also because while we have these other spheres of life, we all are a part of Jesus's church and his word means to teach us how this community of faith we're a part of is supposed to do life together. What I want to do, I think, is just take this text and focus on what specifically Peter is saying to those who lead within the church and those under their authority. And you may well, as we work through that, feel some principles that you can apply to other areas of your life, even if you're not in leadership in the church. And go ahead, let the Spirit speak to you and take those principles. But for us, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to ask a simple question, which is, from this text, what is Peter's vision of leadership in the church? From this text, what is Peter trying to teach us about how leadership is supposed to work within the church? And before we say what he says, we need to just set a couple of things up so we understand what he's talking about. Read verse 1. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So this is Peter setting it up, and there's two things to notice about what he says. One is that he's talking to elders. Now, this 
word in Greek could just mean old people or older people. Likewise, in verse 5, when it talks about younger being subjected to elders, we could read that about chronological age. So the first thing we need to just ask is, does this mean these elders, these leaders of the church, are simply supposed to be the oldest members of the church? Is physical age what Peter is speaking about here? The answer to that is no, at least mostly no. Simply being old does not qualify someone as a leader of the church. One of the simplest ways we know this is that in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, Paul there lays out instructions about qualifications for elders, moral qualifications and questions of gifting and calling. And if someone does not fit those qualifications, if they are quarrelsome or a lover of money, for example, or they aren't able to teach or they're not above reproach in the world, then they ought not be elders in that biblical sense. Indeed, Paul writes to Timothy, who is an elder leading a church Paul planted, and says this. He says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So Timothy is relatively young in his church. Now, to be clear, that, that doesn't probably mean he's like 18 or something. Most likely he's in his 30s or so. But he's an elder in the church, and he's not to let those who are older than him look down on his authority as an elder. So an elder isn't about age, but rather it is someone who has authority because of their spiritual maturity. Someone who has authority in the church, not because of their age, but because of their spiritual maturity and calling. Now that said, and this is the mostly, if I can just speak to you younger parts of the church for just a minute, often spiritual maturity does come along with age, and there is no substitute for years walking with the Lord in terms of spiritual maturity. I mean, just very practically, I have known some saints who have this sort of depth and wisdom to offer because they've been walking with Jesus for like 50 years, and and, and while absolutely you can be younger and still have some growth and maturity and stuff, you do not have 50 years of experience walking with Jesus until you're at least 50, because that's just how math works. And so we need to recognize that older people in the church, and especially people who are older in the faith and have just walked with God for a long time, if, we, if you are younger in the church, you need to recognize that those people are worthy of respect and honor. We should not, simply because elder here means something about our spiritual qualification, dismiss the fact that we who are younger, and we often think that we have it all figured out and know everything, and it's only later that we realize how foolish we can be. So we should show respect to those who are older in the church. But also, this should remind those of us who are older in the church that simply living for more years does not qualify you to speak more fully for God. Just living more years does not necessarily make you wiser or more like Jesus. It is possible to squander years, and it is in fact even possible to spend your life growing in the opposite direction, to become less like Christ the older you get. So we all need to be seeking spiritual maturity and have the humility to recognize how far we still have to go. That said, elders in the church are those who have authority because of their spiritual maturity and calling. 
And that is true in Peter's church, and that is true in our church. The next thing to recognize about that is that Peter views that as a very important calling. In fact, the highest calling that exists in the church. Being an elder is not just some two-year volunteer position on a church board or something like that, which many churches today can treat it as. And did you notice what Peter says at the beginning? He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So Peter was an apostle. He was one of the disciples. He was the leader of the early church. The apostles were eyewitnesses to Jesus and his resurrection, commissioned and sent by him to start and lead the church. So Peter's an apostle, but in terms of his role in the church, he says, I am an elder. If you are an elder in the church, you are equal in office to the apostle Peter. Now, maybe we should spell something out at this point because we are using this word elder. Many churches in our world and many people have this idea that the leadership structure of a church looks like this. You've got Jesus at the top and then some churches and denominations might have like a bishop and then there's the pastor or leader of the local church and then there's the elders and then there's the congregation. That tends to be what we picture when we think about the structure of the church. The problem with that is it doesn't really fit with the way scripture speaks. Um, in the New Testament, it is true that it speaks of elders and of bishops, overseers, and of pastors, which is actually just from the word shepherd, but it uses them to speak of the same group. In fact, if you look ahead at verse 2 in First Peter, you'll notice he, um, he, he's speaking to the elders and he says to shepherd the, the church of God, which is the word we get pastor from, and to exercise oversight, which is the Greek word that we get bishop from. They're all the same people, the same group of people. And so the way that I think best reflects scripture and the way that we as a church and our tradition approaches this is simply to say that the things look like this. Jesus, yes, is the head of the church. That's always what you want on the top of your chart. And then you have elders. And some of those elders we see in in 1 Timothy 5 seem to be set apart to teach which is what people like Paul and Timothy were doing. And so they do have this special role, and that is what I, what we think of as pastors, are in the church. But, um, but then there's other elders. We call them ruling elders who are also alongside those pastors leading the church. And the important thing is, biblically, those people are all treated as equal, that they are a group of people that together lead churches and that they are all equal with each other in terms of authority and power, even if there's some differences in task. All right. All of that said, that's the setup, all right? That's what we need to kind of have in the back of our heads because that's going to shape how we apply this. But then, all right, if that's what eldership is, these people with a spiritual maturity and calling that are given authority in the church, that include pastors like me and also other people from within the church that together lead the church, what is Peter's vision for that leadership? Well, the big category for Peter is what I'm going to call shepherd leadership. Shepherd leadership. So look at verse 2. Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So elders are exercising oversight. They have authority. But what is their authority meant to do? What kind of leaders are they supposed to be? Well, Peter's answer is that they are shepherds. That is his central image. And it's hardly just him. The apostle Paul uses the same image. 
For example, in Acts 20, he charges the elders with saying, Keep watch over yourselves and the entire flock of God, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And Paul and Peter are both ultimately getting this image from Jesus. Indeed, I'm sure that what Peter is ultimately thinking about, Jesus, who says, I am the good shepherd, in John 21, Peter denies Jesus three times before the crucifixion, and then after the resurrection, Jesus restores Peter, and he does it by three times giving him the same charge. He says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Be a shepherd. So leaders in the church are supposed to be shepherds. What does that mean? First, we need to get rid of our romantic imagery of shepherds. Uh, Most of us, this is a real foreign thing in our worlds. And so we think of sheep as sort of cuddly and soft, these like down pillows that you want to lay your head on. And as a consequence, I think a lot of us picture shepherds as these sort of gentle, back-to-earth hippies. And that has no resemblance to the reality. I mean, sheep are livestock. They smell, and they sometimes bite, and they leave poop around on the ground, all of that. And shepherds are salt-of-the-earth, tough people who are used to sleeping outdoors and watching over the sheep. In fact, if I could, in some ways, being something like a cattle herder, a cowhand, might be the closest analogy in our world to this picture. So it is not that romantic ideal of shepherd that Peter means. Instead, the idea of a shepherd in the New Testament speaks both of a leader's task and a leader's posture. It's meant to communicate something about our task and our posture. First, our task of the shepherd is really, I think, three things in the Bible. The most important thing is that it involves leading God's people to spiritual food and drink. All the way back in Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. He, he, he leads me to green pastures. He makes me lie down by still waters. That's about providing sustenance for his people. And so that means pointing people, pointing God's people to Jesus, and especially feeding God's people through God's word. The most central task of the shepherd is to feed God's people through God's word. Secondly, a shepherd's job is to fight off wild animals and predators and bandits. This is also a big part of the calling. We see it in King David's example as a shepherd of the Old Testament. We read about it there in Acts 20 where Paul charges the elders. There are wolves in the world that would seek to devour the sheep. There are false idols and false ideas. And there are wolves in the church, false teachers. And a shepherd's job in scripture is to be watchful for them and defend the sheep from them. And third, a shepherd's job is to seek the sheep that wander. Jesus uses this as an example of himself, the shepherd leaving the 99 sheep to go find the lost lamb. And in some ways, that's really just an extension of the first two tasks. The reason you seek lost sheep is to lead them back to food and away from danger. But it is a special emphasis of Jesus's vision of being the shepherd. So that is the leader's task. But then shepherding, I think, also is meant to speak to the leader's posture, to the way that they do those things. First, a shepherd lives among the sheep. 
In Peter's world, usually the sheep did not belong to the shepherds. People who owned flocks of sheep were rich people, and people who lived with and cared for those flocks of sheep were not. And so the sheep owner might be in a mansion somewhere, but the shepherd walked and slept and lived with his sheep. They knew who he was, and he knew them each. He smelled like them. A shepherd lives among the sheep, and so leaders in the church are called to live among the people they are leading. Shepherds need to know and spend time with those they are caring for. They need to meet with them, break bread with them. I think this is part of why showing hospitality is actually one of the qualifications for being an elder in the New Testament, a willingness to share your home and life and table and space with the people that you're shepherding. And more importantly, I think, a shepherd lives for the sheep. They live with the sheep and they live for the sheep. Their purpose is to care for the flock rather than looking out for themselves. Again, these are not the sheep owners, right? The sheep exist for the guy that owns them. The shepherd exists to protect and steward and watch over them. And so when a predator or a bandit comes along, the shepherd is supposed to be the one who steps in between the sheep and the danger. The shepherd exists for the sheep, not the other way around. That is an especially important challenge to pastors, I think, for elders like me who are given this task of teaching and leading. I have known too many pastors who treat ministry as a career or as a prop for their ego or a chance to show off how God has gifted them. That is a temptation for all of us who are in ministry, and that must not be a temptation that we give into. You can hold me accountable to that. I say this very much as someone aware of those temptations. If I am a shepherd, I am in a real sense less important than the sheep that I am caring for. They are the reason that I exist. And all of that together is what it means to be a shepherd. That is what Peter's readers would have heard and what we should hear as well. And then Peter gives three specific commands to those shepherds. Let's look at each of them. First, he says they are to be shepherds not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. So they're not to be forced to do it, but choose to do it with willing and glad hearts. That might seem like a strange place to start, and part of it is probably a product of the specific people that Peter is writing to. If you remember, all of 1 Peter is written to these churches that are about to face the trial of persecution for their faith. And when the church comes under persecution and attack from the surrounding world, it is often the leaders of the church that bear the brunt of it. They are often the ones who are thrown in prison or harassed or martyred. And so part of this is probably Peter specifically speaking to the elders, saying, look, don't do this just being dragged into it, just being forced into it, because I know that there's part of you that might struggle and even be bitter about this calling because of the persecution you're going to face. But more broadly, this is still a call for elders today. Peter is saying, don't do your job begrudgingly. Don't do it just because you feel like you have to. Eldership is meant to be a calling from God that we then seek to live into and gladly enter into as we lead the church. Then the second command is to do it not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain. Throughout Scripture, 
One of the motives given for false prophets and false teachers is that they are seeking their personal gain, whether in terms of money or the praise of human beings. And sadly, that is still very much a thing that happens in the church. You can think of the obvious examples, right? That pastors who (laughs) fly around in private jets and have these outrageously ostentatious lifestyles as a result of their sheep. Uh, I mean, it is a sad reality that not all, but many of the pastors who are famous and who you see on television or here on the radio, they have gotten outrageously wealthy off of their ministries, and that should make us wary. But it's not just those celebrity pastors, and I think it's a trap for us to focus on them. There are smaller but no less sinful ways that leaders at the level of a local church like ours can still pursue shameful gain. Let me name just two of them. One is through seeking reputation and power. They engage with their calling as leaders out of a desire for reputation and power. I mean, look, at at most churches, you are not going to get rich um, serving as a leader, but you absolutely can seek gain in terms of people's respect. There are people who just like to be in charge, like to have, you know, power over other people, and they pursue leadership in the church because of that. And, um, and that is selfish gain. That is something we need to watch out for in our hearts and in those that we appoint as leaders. Another example of seeking shameful gain is the very real temptation of those who lead the church to show favoritism to people because of wealth. In James 2, James warns about just this sin. In the kingdom of Jesus, all of us are equal. We are all equal before Jesus and are meant to be treated as equally valuable and worthwhile and gifted and important by the church. And that is true regardless of our material situation. That if you are the person who tithes $40 out of your welfare check, you are just as important to the church as the person who tithes $40,000 out of their stock portfolio. But many leaders in the church can treat those people differently. Far too many leaders give undue influence and attention to those who are well off. That is a real danger. It's one of the reasons I intentionally don't even know how much anyone gives to the church, but I'm sure I could still figure it out if I wanted to. And if I did, if any of the leaders of the church did that, that would be seeking shameful gain. We'd be putting worldly wealth ahead of our task as shepherds. So we're not to seek shameful gain, but to shepherd eagerly meaning just because we are the shepherds. That when we look at someone in the church, we shouldn't ask, what do they have to offer, right? That's that danger of favoritism. Instead, we should simply say, here is a sheep. I am a shepherd. I will gladly seek to care for and feed and protect this member of the flock. And then one last command, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Here, Peter is really highlighting two contrasting approaches to leadership. One is leadership through power, trying to force people to do what you want or what they should, through threats, through guilt trips, through manipulation. That can come through very obvious and ugly sins. Those are not absent in the church. I have been around churches for a long time, and I mean, I through my work in our denomination. I'm also engaged with some churches that are in the middle of very hard situations. And I have seen pastors and ruling elders in the church 
use the most vile, worldly tactics in their supposed pursuit of the gospel. Gossip, slander, blackmail, threats of litigation, intimidation, all of that is wrong and is domineering. But there's also a spiritual form of this that I think is subtler but just as real. Leaders of the church are called to correct and challenge its members, but the manner of doing that is always meant to be one of gentleness and kindness. Paul says in Galatians 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now look, the call to feed and protect the sheep means that there's times when your leadership is sort of hard or painful for the sheep to experience because you have to challenge some deeply seated sin or painful pattern. But while that process, it's just inherently painful, the danger comes when you start trying to use pain to motivate the people to change. It's the hellfire and brimstone sermon that seeks through shame or fear to manipulate uh, people into doing what you want. It's the, the sort of like cruel way that pastors. I, I think about like like watching a youth leader try to encourage <laughs>